This is the Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The topic for today's discussion is unique and timely. It's titled Racism in Pain Medicine. Today, we are joined by Dr. Natalia Strand, our consultant anesthesiologist in Mayo Clinic College of Medicine in the Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Strand is an expert in the area of pain medicine and has written a seminal article, which is the focus of today's discussion. This article titled Racism in Pain Medicine, We Can and Should Do More, was published in Mayo Clinic, June 2021 edition. Welcome, Dr. Strand. Thank you, Dr. Ghosh. Thank you for having me. Dr. Strand, your article is one of the lead articles in this year's Mayo Clinic proceedings. And as you know, COVID has taken a big role of emphasis of journals and podcasting and publication. But your article is so timely and it has grabbed a lot of national attention. So I thank you first for writing this article and putting it in paper because many other individuals whom we can't reach with the podcast will be reading your article, institutions will be reading your article, thought leaders will be reading your article, policymakers will be reading your article and wondering what can we do more. Before I start, can you just give us just a brief review of what is racism in pain medicine? Well, what a subject to put in a brief review, right? Racism in medicine at large occurs in many levels. And it's the same within pain medicine as well. You can talk about patient care, different diagnoses, different outcomes, who gets pain medicine when they come to the emergency department and who doesn't. We know this is different based on your race. Um, Who gets diagnosed with a physical ailment versus emotional or mental ailment, but also things on the physician side, you know, who gets trained in new techniques, who gets tagged to be a key opinion leader, who gets awarded at national society meetings, who gets invited to be on landmark papers, who is making the guidelines, who is setting the rules. And and when we look at these levels, you know, patient care, practice settings, academic societies, manuscripts, we realize that if you want to engage in anti-racist behaviors, You have to do it at all of these levels. So racism in medicine at large, whether it's private practice or academics or on the physician or provider side or the patient side, it's a very common widespread issue, even at the most elite and well-meaning of places. And I think, you know, this call of we can do more, but we should do more. It's part of our responsibility as being leaders within our specialties, you know, myself in pain medicine, but for everybody who reads this, to do tangible and realistic short-term things to engage in anti-racist behaviors and make your specialty better for your patients and your colleagues. In your article, you did mention a lot of differences which medical students sometimes have. These are myths. Black patients may feel less pain, and this racial bias leads to inaccurate pain diagnosis and treatment recommendations in anesthesiology and pain medicine. Regional anesthesia for joint replacement is applied less frequently in black patients and underassured. And you have referenced key uh, research from where these uh, texts have been taken. So you also mentioned something that you have called this as 
implicit bias. Can you, this term is new to a lot of us and now right. it has a term. What does it mean? Can you give some examples of implicit bias? Absolutely. And as you're well aware, and as many listeners are aware, most people when engaging in discussions on racism would say, I'm not racist. You know, I'm not racist. Most people don't say I'm racist. I'm aware, you know, and so the truth is everybody has bias. We know that from validated studies and, and there are online calculators you can to look at your bias, whether it's gender bias, racial bias, biased on socioeconomic factors. So I think implicit bias is that, that sort of unconscious bias. You don't know that you may harboring a bias because you're not quite sure what that looks like. It's almost like seeing your own blind spot you can. I mean, it's your blind spot. I mean, even more simplistically, editing your own paper. I mean, you made the mistakes in the first place. I like to, to say implicit bias. It's normal. Everybody has it. So I think this defensive mechanism of like, oh, I'm not this, I'm not that. It doesn't make you a bad person to have implicit bias. We all do. It's a product of what we were exposed to, how we were raised, what our communities looked like, what our education track was like. But becoming aware of those biases is how you start to work on them and break them down. So I would just say to anybody listening, you probably have implicit biases. I know I do. And so normalizing that and being okay with it as part of the human condition, I think number one, that's what puts you in a place to be actively anti-racist. You know, you have you to engage with your own. You do mention the one of the bigger problems could be ignorance or denial of our biases. And you, you write that ignorance or denial of our biases makes it impossible to address them. How valid is that statement? You don't know you have a blind spot. All of us have a blind spot. And we think we don't have a blind spot. So you actually make an impact. So you're like an instructor, driving instructor. And I'm looking at it, actually educating us about this blind spot. You give a quotation from Gandhi. It says, action expresses priority. What do you mean by that? And you actually make an attempt of writing on it. What kind of actions would express priorities regarding this very important topic of racism in pain medicine and probably medicine in general? I would just challenge anybody that saying that you are not racist is not enough. You have to be actively anti-racist. And that is the action. You know, whether that action is reading a novel to educate yourself, whether that action is making sure that you reflect diversity in your publications, or if you're an editor, or whether that's education, making sure, for example, at the medical school level, you teach what hypoxia looks like in a black patient, not just a white patient. So, you know, being actively anti-racist can happen at every level. But one of the things I like is, I mentioned earlier, this implicit bias calculator. You know, most of us are science-minded and like hard data. So, you can go to implicit bias calculator and take a test and get something, a validated tool will tell you what your biases are. But the good news is implicit biases can be changed. So I think by having intrinsic motivation, I mean, nobody's gonna pretty much come up and tell you what your biases are. You have to intrinsically be curious and then look at that yourself and then be motivated to change it by engaging in anti-racist actions. One of the strategies that you have written in the paper, and I would like you to kind of give us some idea, it would, be, it would have been good if you could show our audience uh, what this concept you have. You label it as inside-out approach. What does this inside-out mean? And what is the approach? What does it encompass? I think this inside-out approach, number one, is taking a little bit of ownership. You know, it starts with us, and then it kind of 
goes out from there. What's inside our core medical community, it's our training programs, it's our professional organizations, it's our relationships with industry, meaning who gets trained in these advanced procedures, and it's our practice setting. And then, you know, that kind of goes to the next layer of the pain medicine community. You know, that includes our patients, their families, their experiences. And then that actually goes out into a larger layer of, of society at large. You know, the key message here is that as an individual, you know, if I think about changing society, that's a big task. It feels overwhelming. It doesn't feel like I can do that. But can I make sure if I'm planning a meeting to have diversity on every panel? Absolutely. Can I be sure that if I'm providing patient care to be aware if I have any racial implicit biases? Absolutely. So this inside out approach sort of breaks it down to things that we can actually do. And then when you think about it, especially in, in this diagram in the paper, you can see how it all sort of has this ripple effect to the larger societal implications. Yeah, so it looks like we, we do bring the bias and these biases are, as you rightly mentioned, it may be in our training programs, our professional organizations, they're all implicit bias. We don't even know practice settings. And then ultimately it comes to the patient who's the recipient of some of the biases or the traits of the biases we have gathered over years of experience and never had a training to talk about it. I mean, till now, I've never been in any conference where this topic has been even mentioned. As I'm seeing in the last couple of years, thankfully so, our students and staff are all into it, and now it is the main focus. So we have a large number of medical educators and students in Mayo Clinic and almost in every institution. So how should our medical education be changed? What is your advice to our educators to ensure that our education in understanding, especially the understanding of implicit bias, which will help in creation of a new generation of provider who would know exactly when they step in that platform, they would understand, oh my God, am I doing something because of a bias I have? Or is this real science based on something that I've learned to deal with this kind of bias and I should do this or I should do that. What kind of advice would you have for our educators? On the individual level, of course, you know, make an effort to be aware of your own biases so that you can be conscious and, and educate yourself on some ways to, to combat those. So that's number one. Number two, I do think that graduate medical education systems as well as medical schools need to have an expert in diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think too often these tasks fall to maybe the one black person in the department or the one you know person of color in the department. And people assume that because this is your race or your background or your culture, that you're an expert in it. And the truth is that happens a lot where people just kind of get shouldered with this tax, this diversity tax. Since they represent diversity, they must be an expert and they must present the solution. So I would say, you know, not only do we have to make sure that the discussion is at the level of medical education, but let's get experts and let's make sure the time is compensated, whether that's by categorical time, by financial compensation. This is a really important subject and people should be treated professionally. So making sure you just don't ask whoever's around that you think must be an expert because they must've experienced it. That's something that happens a lot and it's it's unfair. So I think as, as we start to move forward, as you said, this, this is getting more common to address diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in the medical field. I hope to see formal positions that have recognized experts. I hope that as 
physicians and academics get promoted, that their work in diversity, equity, and inclusion counts towards academic promotion. I think that that's a way of recognizing it. But yes, I think it has to be involved at the medical school level, at the graduate medical education level, and even before medical school in the pipeline, there needs to be work to make sure that we help students reach the medical school level. Um, you know, we know that there are racial barriers at every level. You know, we know that Black physicians are promoted to full professor at a fraction of the rate of white physicians. How many Black would-be physicians never even make it to medical school? So, you know, there are pipeline issues too. And so I think volunteering in your community too, to help mentor people that may not have mentors that look like them. I think that's really important also. I think one of the strategies you mentioned in your paper, which came from the data from the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, and there were so many new terms in your paper and each of them planted an idea. One of them you've written is stereotype replacement and counter stereotype imaging. It's often these lectures are left to physicians of color that you probably know what's going on. So why don't you give the lecture? And it's extremely hard. They might have faced this in their career and they might be having so many challenges. And to have a person who's already carrying a burden of this to say, why don't you lead the course? We think that we are doing them a great favor by having them say the quotes, but sometimes they themselves don't know what to teach. I mean, they would know what didn't go right, but this needs a thoughtful scholarship. You've listed stereotype replacement. Be aware and consciously change a stereotype response. Counter stereotype imaging. Visualize an opposing stereotype. Individualization. Learning about a person's situation and personal history and so on and so forth. Partnership building. This is a whole different approach in medical school and education. And you said we have to start with making a commitment. If you really want to make a change, you have to put your money where your mouth is and where your papers are written. So you mentioned about a diversity officer. Is that correct? I didn't say officer, but yes, someone diversity, equity, and inclusion. This person should also know how to guide deans and others in the field of racism, on the field of diversity and inclusion. So it's a science which is evolving and hopefully we'll have a lot more clarity. And that's what we are discussing here. The next one you're saying from the insider approach is, we mentioned about education being an arm. The other one is practice. What can we do at the practice level to promote diversity? Well, obviously hiring is a big thing. Making efforts to hire a diverse, whether that's a physician group, front desk, office, scheduling. I think it racism affects patients at every level. You know, sometimes it's the front desk where the offenses occur. And, you know, the physician may not be the one that has done anything, but the patient's already sort of turned off or mistreated before they even get to the exam. So I think having diversity at every level is a goal. But I think too, it's retention. So that goes into creating a culture that feels inclusive and safe and respectful. Being inclusive means someone's actively engaged in the practice, right? So whatever level that they're there, your voice is heard, your voice is respected, your voice is requested. So making sure that you have an inclusive culture is really important for retention because a lot of times people will just leave an uncomfortable environment, you know, whether it's toxic or intimidating or unwelcoming. And so even if you do kind of recruit diversity to your team, you may not be able to retain it unless it's truly an inclusive culture. So there are a lot of things culturally you can do to maintain the diversity that you were able to have. So I think on the practice level, that's really important. It goes both ways. What you mentioned is absolutely important to have the culture, but sometimes you have a person of color who's extraordinary and that person gets too many options. 
it's, it's difficult to retain that person because everybody wants that person. So that is the other thing, the paucity, the number is small. So you have written that once the person reaches that level, as I said, there is no, no shortage of opportunities. The main problem is hiring. Main problem is how to write a resume, how to write and go through an interview. A lot of help is required at that level. How would you suggest that we could do that? Everybody has to write a resume, and I think it's daunting for everybody. It's just that some people may have had more resources and exposure to that. You know, my dad was a physician, so when I applied to medical school, he had been through it all before. That was a privilege that I had. Certainly, there needs to be mentorship, sponsorship, support, resources, but recruiting practices need to be looked at, too. Because people that are biased against because of their race, they may not even make it to the interview because the recruiter didn't put them through. So I think being just aware of all of the steps, whether it's the pipeline issue, whether it's an identification issue, whether it's a recruitment issue, or whether it's a retention issue, looking at if for some reason you're having difficulty having diversity in your practice, seeing where the effort seems to be needed the most. I think in looking at recruitment practices, that, that's very important as well. And the third part of the inside approach, which you mentioned was the team-based approach, how to create a culture of safety within the organization. Why is this so very important, a culture of safety, especially when it comes to cultural diversity, equity, and how do we create such a team? That is very hard with racial bias, with gender inequity, with, with religious bias. I mean, it is very hard to expect an individual to raise awareness to their individual experiences without fear of retaliation. So when we're talking about a culture of safety, you need a reporting system that actually works where someone feels empowered and encouraged to report, not like they're telling on somebody, but in the name of making the practice better for everybody. And so hopefully there's no fear of retaliation. It's more of just a continuous improvement. I think it's important to involve patients in these safety initiatives. You know, we want patients to feel safe. We want providers to feel safe. So I think if you have input from all of those different levels, that's how you create a culture of safety. But really what you need is for individuals to feel like they can express what their experiences are without fear of job loss, loss of promotion, retaliation from a coworker. And that is very difficult to do. Yeah, it is. It is probably the time to embark on some of the steps that you're mentioning because true diversity brings real richness to an institution. When patients come to our institution, they say, I don't see a doctor of my color or I don't see somebody who speaks my language. Am I safe here? So it goes for us above and beyond to say, no, you are safe here. We are trained in a culture of acceptance and tolerance. Even though I don't look like you, I can understand your pain and I'll try my very best to make you comfortable and answer your questions. So that kind of effort or training is very important. I mean, every institution, like what you mentioned, has to have their new employees on, and even exist, existing employees go through the training, which you mentioned, create a reporting system. Involving patients in safety initiatives becomes hard. Uh, it probably can be done in a smaller group and help in health communities better than large hospitals. How's there's a new movement and you've written about patient safety officers. How do they help in this effort? 
So it's, a, it's an interesting idea and, and you know, it kind of falls under sort of what we have here at Mayo is the Office of Patient Experience. Somebody that's sort of responsible for their safety and experience as it relates to racial implications. So this can be anything from 360 evaluations that are done from patients. You know, we're, we're familiar with the Press-Ganey reports, but you could have more detailed surveys available for patients to provide anonymous but very meaningful detailed feedback so that their experiences can be shared with their care team. So I think the role of a patient safety officer could be somebody who's responsible for collecting this sort of data, sharing it in a meaningful way, organizing conversations. You know, I've been part of conversations with divisions, for example, where there's just sort of a fireside chat. Everybody gets on over a lunch hour to share. And these have been powerful. You know, the scheduler will share that a patient called and said, I don't want to see a black doctor. A lab tech will share that they had a patient refuse to have their blood drawn by them because of their race. Or a physician may share that the patient said they wanted a white doctor or a white Christian doctor. And so I think it's really powerful to share stories, not only for the individual, but for all of the people that don't see this every day because they are mainstream or they are reflective of what their patient's you know, religion is or what their skin color is. And so having these just like small group conversations so that you can share this with your own division or your own department, I think is really important too. And that's the kind of thing a patient safety officer might, you know, be in charge of scheduling and getting into the calendar. You're right. These are tough conversation, very uncomfortable, but very necessary. But to the credit of uh, patient experience, they not only share the experiences which we are just talking about, which are suboptimal, but they also share uh, stories of happiness, joy, a great comment about a doctor, a great comment about teams. Ultimately, there are more good comments rather than tough comments, but it's the tough five or 10% of these adverse comments, which take so much of our time and needs to be paid attention to for exactly the reason Uh, that you mentioned that if we don't, it's a big blind spot. It's our implicit bias. And fortunately, in larger organizations, there are so many stakeholders right from the front desk, the nursing team, the doctors, and the radiologists, technicians, and they are the eyes of the institution. They are actually the soul of an institution, and they are the ones who have to carry your message. I mean, everybody has to have the same message. And they report. The reporting structure is not only by the patients, but internal reporting system, as you mentioned, to have any employee who feels that one of their own was not nice to a patient or was nice to a colleague. And that's when, when we have the 360 degrees feedback without any fear of repercussion. And I do want to share that I think overt racism, kind of mean-spirited, intentional, is definitely the minority of cases. I think most racism is well-meaning. It's that the person simply is naive or ignorant to the thing that they're saying or doing, and they don't even realize that it's offensive. You know, they don't know things like microaggressions, micro insults, micro invalidations, and it might come off as a joke. And then, you know, the person who feels affected by it might think if they react, they're coming off as sensitive or angry or not taking a joke well. And so I don't think people especially at our institution, you know, we have a really high quality of workforce here. And that's what makes working at Mayo so great. It's well-intentioned, accidental, I think, mostly just implicit, unconscious things that you're doing and you don't realize you're doing it. And that's what makes it so hard to attack because it's not overt. I mean, overt racism is very easy to recognize and I believe would be called out by several witnesses. It's the implicit bias 
that is more difficult to recognize and more difficult to address. Right. So there's the platinum rule in business and medicine. The golden rule was treat somebody as you would like to be treated yourself. And platinum rule is treat somebody as they would like to be treated. Then you bring up a big organization and these are boundaries that we don't see. These are the professional organizations with our system right now with COVID. We don't even meet them. We don't even see them. Sometimes you might see them in a Zoom meeting. They are hidden in some building in a big city. Uh, the organizations are there and we pay their annual dues. What can they do? But they have a huge power because we are all associated with them. Uh, our careers are tied to them. Our thought leaders and champions are, are big officers in them, but they rotate every year. So I don't know how much of a agent of change they can be until they are continuously doing it. So how can this professional organization address uh, these big topics of diversity, inclusion, and, and can you explain the term equity? We understand the diversity and inclusion sometimes is clear, but what is equity? So I'll give a good example of equity um, versus equality, because those are the two terms that get kind of confusing. Equality would be giving everybody a step stool in the OR, but one person's 6'4 and one person's 5'4. So, you know, the 6'4 person doesn't need a step stool, but the 5'4 person does. So if the 5'4 person gets it and not the 6'4 person, that's more equity versus equality would be everybody gets it. So, you know, that's a really easy way to sort of look at it. Equity is kind of leveling the playing field and equality is everybody getting the same thing. So equality sounds really good until you realize that it's not equitable and right. to really level the opportunity, it's more about equity. And so in talking about the strategies to promote equity, diversity, inclusion, and professional societies, I'm going to go over quickly what we listed in the paper, and then I'll talk a little sure. bit more about it. But we talked about promoting fellows and junior faculty on a national level, uh, reviewing workload structures for inconsistencies. Journal editors should actively recruit underrepresented minority reviewers and editors. Grant committees should welcome underrepresented minority applicants. Professional societies should be held accountable if they don't represent all of their dues-paying members. Meeting chairs and planning committees should review speaker proposals and commit to avoiding all white panels. So, you know, on an individual level, if you're not active in your society on a leadership level, what can you do? Number one, you can point it out. You can say, hey, I've noticed that this is an all-white panel or that all of your panels are all-white panels. And most likely the meeting organizers didn't even think about that because it wasn't on their radar. The second thing you can do is boycott. If you say, listen, I, I would love to come, but I'm not going to come because there's no diversity represented in your speakers, you know, that, that will send the message very quickly. So as an individual, you have a lot of power. Believe me, nobody wants to be accused of not being supportive of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if somebody is brought to their attention, I think they will be highly motivated to change it. If you do have a leadership role in your society, which a lot of Mayo Clinic physicians do, then you really have power to say, our journal editors need to be diverse. So we need to actively look at the diversity of authors in these papers. You know, how many journals have that as part of their review criteria that there is, you know, diversity in the authorship group? How many people look at societies and say, in your leadership, you know, are there any Black leaders in this society? So I think people can start to look at that. And if you are in a society, you can call for that, you know, whether you're at your board meeting and or you're your annual meeting, planning committee. These are all chances to make the differences in a really impactful way because a group of 10 or 15 people are making all of these decisions. And then you might have, you know, 500 to 1,000 people at your conference. So if you're one of those 10 to 15 people, you have a huge ability to impact a large number of people in your audience. 
I think that's where your concept of equity comes because the person of color who is promoted to this position might not have all those experience, might not have all these other events, not because they have never tried, but you know, it took them a long time to get where they are right now. And they will never get there until unless there is equity and they hit and, and they pushed. And, and our experience has shown that when these individuals are promoted, they do fascinating job. The change which they can bring compared to somebody else who's already there in the community, community or professional organization who is already accomplished, but this person is so motivated now having received the chance of working with everybody else and that they bring a unique perspective of the experience, the diversity, which you mentioned, which till now they never had a platform to express. A lot more work needs to be done. And I like your ideas, all the strategies that you put. And I would strongly recommend all our listeners to read Dr. Strand's uh, article, uh, which came out on the June 21st uh, proceedings. And we'll put the reference in our podcast, which is, uh, I think, one of the best articles. Uh, it summarizes so many uh, complex themes, but it also puts them down into nice um, tables, which are which is which makes this article a stellar. And I think your article will be one of the most cited articles for years to come. Now comes the whole thing is who's funding us. Some of us are fortunate to get NIH funding, but most have to depend on industry funding. So what can we do to our industry colleagues who are probably meaning well-meaning to ensure that diversity, inclusion, and equity is there? in their part of the world when they are sponsoring projects or speakers? How can we force them to do it? How can I tell Pfizer or how can I tell Moderna to say, you know, your scientists and your speakers, you have to have this diversity and inclusion. Well, um, one of the good things about social media is that everybody has a pretty loud microphone and a pretty direct line. If you really want to connect with somebody that you have no other way to connect to, you want to call out Pfizer or something, you can tweet it and you can tag them in your tweet and you can point it out and you can ask them for their response. And so I think on such a public platform, uh, you can reach people who are a little bit otherwise unreachable if you didn't have the network or the relationship already set up. A smaller scale, you know, it happened for me about a year ago there, maybe two years ago, there was an industry sponsored event where they were teaching a new technique And I pointed out the lack of diversity in the trainers. There were three trainers and they were all white men. And I just said this to the uh, regional director who happened to be telling me about this training. And then they changed that. They invited another faculty who was not white and who was also female. So that was a really easy way just by pointing it out. Again, people don't see their own blind spots. So I think most people want to do this. They want to support diversity, equity, inclusion, and it might just have been an oversight because they weren't aware of their own blind spots. So I think just bringing it up is a really powerful tool because I think, again, I said this earlier, I think most people want to support this. They just didn't, and then they want to fix it. So I think, you know, yes, you can write letters, you can use social media, you can have conversations. And then I think you call for change and hopefully you call for change and it changes. But if it doesn't, you know, I think then you have to think about, well, you know, how important it is to you. Is this one training, you know, are there only a few people? There really wasn't an opportunity to draw from a diverse crowd or was it something where they really could have expanded? And one of the things that I like to do is sponsor other people for events. And we know that black physicians are under-sponsored. 
meaning they might have mentors, for example, but a sponsor is someone who really creates an opportunity for you. They nominate you for an award. They suggest your name for a, a platform talk. They suggest your name to industry to be one of their speakers or trainers. And so if you're in a position of influence, you know, making a conscious effort to sponsor underrepresented minorities can be the first step in making that change. That's great. So I have to force myself every day saying, what am I doing for diversity, inclusion, and equity? And if I'm not doing, why not? And if I'm doing, how much am I doing? Apart from your article, what should a listener do to bring them to up to speed? Should they go to the institution, institutional leaders and say, what are you doing about these three areas of educating us on diversity, inclusion, equity? Hopefully, every institution has some form of division or experts who are dealing with or teaching. So I would say that if you're not planning on becoming a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert, but you just want to engage in anti-racist activities yourself, I would say, you know, after reading this paper, you should easily be able to come up with three actions a year that you can do to engage in anti-racist behaviors, whether that's reading a book on anti-racism to educate yourself, whether that is sponsoring an underrepresented minority for a national talk or inviting them onto one of your papers. So I think on an individual level, that in itself is fairly simple and not that hard for us to do. You know, at an organizational level, we do have committees for diversity, equity, inclusion. So if anybody has an interest in becoming part of that, I'm sure that they are welcoming members. And if you have any ideas for programs or educational gaps that need to be filled, I think reaching out to the equity, diversity, and inclusion group would be a wonderful first step. I mean, Mayo Clinic has pledged $100 million to fight racism in the next 10 years. It is something that Mayo Clinic is behind and it's aligned with Mayo Clinic values. So the resources are there. Um, but as an individual, I think we need to not be daunted. There are, there are things that you can do today to be anti-racist, to help the future of medicine that don't involve you know, becoming an expert, getting a PhD in, in anti-racist behavior. So not to be intimidated, everybody's busy. A lot of us have kids, we have jobs, we work on papers, grants, promotions. This is something that we can all do today. Thank you, Dr. Strand. We have been talking about racism in pain medicines, but overall we have been covering the talk about how we can uh, improve ourselves by and our organization using the inside out approach. Uh, it's a very uh, stimulating article, gives a lot of ideas from reading books to sponsoring individuals to coaching and mentoring and working with the organization and using the social media. I completely agree with you. This has to be in our DNA of our organization. It is not something to be done as an afterthought. It cannot be done as it looks good on paper and our institution is doing it, uh, but it has to be in the culture. Culture is something which seeps over years and years and years and years and decades and then become part of it. Thank you, Dr. Strand. Any last minute thoughts for our uh, viewers and audience? Yes, um, I would just like to say that while we can in, engage in anti-racist commitments today, obviously we're not going to solve this, you know, in one or two years, but don't be afraid to engage in this conversation. There will be missteps, there will be things to learn, and I think for, for that a lot of people are so afraid to even engage the conversation in fear of making a mistake. But, you know, just realize that we're all going to make mistakes as we learn and improve in this area, um, no matter what your race is. And as long as you have the intention to be anti-racist and you continuously are motivated to improve, that's really what matters. And again, you just, you know, call anybody who's inspired today to make a commitment today to do three things this year 
to help. And we have tons of ideas in our paper. You can look at, there's several resources in and outside of Mayo, but if we all make that commitment together, I think we could see a very, very large impact in the next few years. I'll start by reading a book. That's probably would be the best place to start for me. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Natalia Strand. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed our Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and we'll see you back next week.